You're listening to the No Gray Areas podcast with Patrick McCullough. Today's guest is Guy Berlando, an Air Force F-16 pilot veteran and author. Guy defines what it means to live on purpose for a purpose and how to allow our passions to drive us. Let's dive in. Guy Berlando, we've known each other now for over a decade, I think, right? Yep. And um, we had to have you on this podcast because you have led, lived an interesting life, fascinating life, and inspiring life in a lot of ways. We're going to get to this in a moment, but you had a, a really interesting experience when you were a fighter pilot having to eject. We want to yep. get to that in a little bit. But first, we got to unpack a little bit of your story. So sure. where were you born? I was born in Niles, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. Okay. So you were a Chicago boy in some yeah. ways, right? right? So Cubbies. 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 Oh, okay. So you uh, you know what it feels like to not win for a long time. That's right. <laughs> if you're a Cubby fan. Yeah. Perseverance is a key That's true. to success. That's true. So so you was that all your growing up years in Chicago? Yeah, Outside 21 Chicago? years. 21 years. Okay. So you end up well well, first of all, you I've I've recognized this just from your post. Uh, man, you had a dad that was your hero, wasn't he? In a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And um, I always connected with your posts about your dad because he worked for Schwinn, the, yeah. the bicycle company. So, right? yeah, my dad grew up on the south side of Chicago. Okay. And uh, his parents were immigrants. He was first generation here. And from? From Italy. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he's just a really neat guy. And he wasn't a very outgoing type of personality, kinda, but kinda yes, quiet. he was. Yeah. Okay. And he fell into bicycle racing. And uh, his brother joe really encouraged him yeah. along the ways he never had a real coach or anything like that he would speed skate in the winter time which he actually enjoyed that even more but he would do racing for that but he he would he started into the bicycle racing yeah, yeah. and joe worked his brother joe worked for schwinn bicycles back then everything around the paramount bicycle was hand painted and Joe was the guy that did all that. He did all the hand painting on all the Schwinn bicycles way back when. when my I dad went I on, really wanted a Paramount bike. Because yeah. when I raced, I raced Schwinn's, as I've told you. I might have one for you. Yeah, I, I love that bike. <laughs> that was the one I wanted back when I was racing. Yeah, so he went on to the Olympics, 48 and 52. Really? So two-time Olympian. He didn't uh, win a medal, per se. But, I mean, still, it's a, quite an achievement oh, yeah. to be able to do that without a coach or anything. He did it all on his own. He was... At that time, bicycle racing was very, very popular sports in the United States, kind of like a, maybe not maybe as big as football and basketball, yeah. but it was a very big sport and people followed it and especially the newspapers. And my dad was number one and he was the first inductee, one of the first inductees in a bicycle hall of fame when they started that up. So he's just, he's very well known in the bicycle yeah. industry. I, in fact, at his funeral a couple of years ago, some of the, the guys that knew him really well came up to us and, and was saying, you know, the, the Shimano, which is very big in bicycles. Anybody out there that mm -hmm. knows anything mm -hmm. about bicycles has heard of Shimano. Yep. And they told me that the one Shimano brother ran the business and the other one was the engineer. And my dad would constantly tell him, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. And basically taught the Shimanos what they know about Shimano building yeah, of the yeah. different bicycle parts. Those were some so, of my bike parts on yeah, my racing bike back today, when I raced. I just yeah. bought a mountain bike and it's got Shimano all yeah. over it. So I didn't even know that was like a family. Okay, and, and, your, so and the, your dad was part of that. Yeah, and so the Shimano brothers, they brought over a whole entire film crew when we were, when I was still young, I was probably about 12 years old or so, and they did a whole documentary on my dad and filmed us and all that. So yeah, wow. So wow. my dad so, is my dad is very well respected, or you know he's passed now, but was very well respected in the bicycle world. Yeah. Okay. So you grow up there. Uh, you, good family, right? Great you family. family. You had a great one family. One sister, older yeah. sister. One older sister, 
And then did you go into the Air Force right out of high school or no. what, what was your journey? I was okay. lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was, I kind of hung around with, um, you know, if you remember the greasers, if you will, we call ourselves a different name, but that's who I was. I mean, we yeah. went out, looked for fights with the, the, with the jocks, the athletic guys and stuff like that. Even though I ran track, I didn't associate myself with that. I associated myself with a tanker jacket, white t-shirt and engineer boots. Yeah. That was, that was my right. motto in high school. Right. <laughs> and, uh, Anyhow, so it was a different breed, and I, but I knew I wanted something more because in the summertime... You when wanted I was in something school, more than fighting with the jocks. Exactly. Yeah, okay. When I was in high school, in the summertime, I worked at a warehouse, a book publishing place. And one thing that that taught me was that I did not want a job where I was going to be indoors all the time. I needed something where I was going to be outside. Yeah. I had a love for the stars. Uh, I had built my own telescope, spent a lot of time at the planetarium down there in Chicago. And love of the stars is my big thing. So I, right after high school, not knowing what I wanted to do, I did a community college and I started studying physics because I wanted to go into become an astrophysicist. And okay. then the third year. That's quite a jump from like fighting with jocks yeah. to wanting to be an astrophysicist. Well, I was fortunate in that I didn't really have to study and I still got A's. I yeah. was one of those kind okay. of kids. Yeah. And I was very fortunate and I didn't realize it at the time, of course, you know, but I, my first and second year of college, I started realizing I wasn't going to be able to handle the math because I didn't have the study habits. It's too abstract for me, the yeah. calculus and stuff I needed. I couldn't put hands and, and yeah, touch yeah, it you know yeah so it, it was too abstract for me and i started getting lost and my dad recognized that and he came to me one day and asked me if i wanted to learn to fly and i did so i started flying but then he came to me and he said hey would you like to go down to embry riddle in daytona beach and t check out the school and it was a dream come true and so we went down to florida checked out the school and while we were there i kind of nudged at my dad i said i think i'd like to check out the rotc Mm. And he goes, what? Because mm. <laughs> he had served in World War II, but he, we're not a military family yeah. at all. Yeah. And we went in there, sat down with Lieutenant Colonel John B. Kremlin. I'll never forget it. 30 minutes, walked out underneath the Florida sunshine. My dad's like, you don't want to have anything to do with that, do you? And I said, yeah, dad, I think I do. The only thing I'm concerned about is having to cut my hair. <laughs> Great <laughs> yeah, hair the girls yeah, love, yeah, you yeah. know? And uh, so I joined. That's how I got into the military. So I was 24. Wow. I was a little bit later. Okay. So yep. you go into the Air Force, yep, right? And then did you you went in to be a pilot? You wanted to be a pilot, but I did go into the ROTC most to go be into a pilot. The Air Force yeah. to be a pilot, and most don't get to be pilots. Exactly. Right? Yeah, I I ended up I found my calling, yeah. truly, because like I was saying, I was lost, and then I walked into the ROTC detachment, and something just resonated deep within me, mm. and I really excelled at it. We were the largest all volunteer detachment at that time. It was over five hundred cadets, and and three. Well, I had to do another three years of college. I had to do six years of college. I'm not all that bright. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they wouldn't accept my credit hours. Anyhow, so, but my third year, I became the detachment commander, which is a big honor. And yeah. then they not only gave me Euronato Joint Jet Pilot Training, NJEPT, which is the premier pilot training base in America, where they send all the top Euronato countries, Euro countries, to their, their top students there as well. They also gave me a regular commission. So there's only a handful of those given out a year to ROTC. Reserve Officer Training Command means you get commissioned as a reserved officer. You're yeah. an officer, but you're in the reserves. Yeah. And I got a regular commission out of that. So I just really, truly found my calling. Isn't it fascinating how life works? Like, you know, your dad is just, he comes to you and he's like, hey, why don't we go check this out, right? And that takes you in a direction that like you were you were made for right like right. god put it you wouldn't happen without my dad so he yeah. is my hero yeah. for sure wow wow so you end up flying 
F-16s. Correct. So I, I have to ask it because most of the listeners, including me, <laughs> what what that's got to be a thrill. Like that's I, that's that's on my bucket list. If I could get in the cockpit of a fighter jet and see what that feels like, that's got to be incredible. You know, as you're saying that, what comes to mind is when you see a fighter. If you've, if you've never seen it, you know, try to. But if you've yeah. ever seen a fighter go by and how loud it is, mm-hmm. right? But when you're in the cockpit, it's very quiet. You really? don't hear that noise, you know, and you got earplugs in, you got a headset on, helmet on. And uh, so it's very quiet. So it's almost surreal from that perspective. Yeah. And, you know, most of the times we're on a mission, so we don't have a chance to really enjoy it. Yeah. You know, but every once in a while, you'll get one of those times where you get to take an airplane out. And I was a functional check flight pilot, so they would basically be the first one to fly that thing after some major repairs not sure if it's going to work properly or not well that sounds like and, a fun job oh, i loved it <laughs> and uh on a couple of those i got to to really play around with the airplane and experience what that thing could do and just on its own and just really get into the groove of it and just feel it and the plane really does become a part of you it's like you're not you don't think of yourself as a pilot when yeah. you're flying the airplane yeah. you're thinking about the mission and you just got this this plane that's that you're carrying along yeah you know you we we say you strap the jet on you don't strap into the jet you strap the jet on and that's Mm. kind of the mindset yeah wow it's it's an amazing experience i wish everybody could experience it. oh man i i think a lot of people would love to experience it although most most can't really handle it right when they really get in and you guys start turning those like whatever they what do they call them like g-force the, the g-force yeah yeah. yeah 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 we did a lot of incentive flights uh, for the for the maintainers and you know airmen of the quarter those types of things as a reward we take them up and give them a flight and those are some of the most memorable experiences truly because you know like you you know if i was to take you up yep. in an airplane yep. it's something you will never ever forget yeah. it's like right? a once in a lifetime experience yeah that- so being able to do that is it was really yeah. a lot of fun so those were some of your favorite experiences of flying the jets is when you would take one out, someone's worked on it, the mechanics worked on it, you have to take it out, make sure it's running well, and you're going and just getting to play with it a little mm-hmm. bit, right? And, yeah. And, and you're not on a mission, so to speak. Yeah, those are you know just some of the where you really get a chance to appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. But on a day-to-day basis, it's it's all about the mission. Yeah. And some of the most memorable missions are one where they're in very large packages where there's 50, 100 airplanes out there. Yeah. And you're a part of that. And it's just amazing the amount of brain power that's yeah. extrapolated. And it, that, to make all that happen, it's just, it's amazing. It's, it's that part of being a fighter pilot, most people will never understand. Yeah. The flying, they can kind of, you know, okay, I can imagine what that's like, but understanding what goes on behind to make that all happen, it's a whole nother yeah. story. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Like, it's a whole nother story, like like most people wouldn't get that. Like, the complexities the of complexity it? complexity of okay. it. The, the amount of mission planning. For instance, if you're doing a complex mission like that, like for once, uh, one time we, I got picked to lead a package against a U.S. Air Force carrier group in the Adriatic as a practice mission, right? It was two months of planning for an hour and a half long mission. Okay. And I didn't even get to to complete it because just as I was getting ready to start my attack on the carrier group, I'm leading this whole package of airplanes behind me. My airplane really went bad. It went in the wrong direction really bad. And I had a break off and me and my wingman were 200 miles offshore and my, we're an electric jet because everything's electrically powered. And I started losing all my electrics. Everything started going. 
And uh, this is after the ejection in Korea. Now we're in Italy and we're flying back and we're trying to figure out what's going on with this airplane. We can't figure out what's going on and uh, gone through the whole checklist. Now we're just, we're just sitting there for another 30 minutes trying to get to shore. And my, my wingman goes, hey, guy, oh, Pepe, you know, Pepe, what, you know, I've seen this once before. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, it was a fire. And I go, shut up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and sure enough, it burnt through three of the four wire bundles for the flight controls. So by the time I landed, if it had been a little bit longer, I would have had to eject a second time. So, okay. So you brought so that up. So there's just a lot here. of complexity. Oh, going yeah. Through. Yeah. I can imagine. And, and you were in for 20, 20 some years, right? Yeah. A little over 20 years. A little over yeah. 20 years. You probably flew a lot of missions. I did. did. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I did. I had over 200 combat hours, but, uh, you know, I don't know how many total missions I had. When I retired, I was one of the top 100 for all-time F-16 hours. So I had a lot of really? experience in so the you, airplane. Yeah. 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 That, that's not pales in comparison with some of the guys have now. But at that time, it was pretty, it was pretty significant. Yeah. So we were talking earlier. You, you went, um, um, once you get out of training and everything, you go to Korea for a little while. Then you go to Germany for a little while, right? Yep. That's where you meet your wife, yes. who you just celebrated 30 years with. Congratulations. Yes. And then you go to Italy, right? Yep. You're in Italy. Where after that? Uh, Phoenix. So we were in Phoenix for another 10 years, finished out my military career, and then stepped over to Southwest Airlines. Okay. So we, we're going we're gonna to come back to the ejection story. Okay. But <laughs> we, you, then you go to Southwest Airlines, and... Um, I, I suspect that flying a jet and flying what you were, what, what, what did you fly in Southwest? What are they? Use? They 737. Okay. Uh, the, the F-16 and the 737, a little different? Very different. <laughs> yeah. It's, was it's it totally different. A little boring compared to the F-16? Well, you know, the easiest analogy would be like going from a Formula One race car to driving a bus. Yeah. And it's truly what it is. And yeah. it's, it's different, but it's still challenging in its own right. So that's what you do. You, you look at the challenges. Because yeah. if you're not pushing yourself, if you're not trying to better yourself, then you start decaying. Mm -hmm. And decaying mm -hmm. is not a good place to be mentally. Mm -hmm. So you find the new challenges in life and flying in a 737. It's a totally new ball game from flying the F-16. I had a lot of flying experience, but now I'm in an, a new, whole new ball game. Yeah. And so I have to learn that ball game yeah. to play it right yeah. and, and, to, and to be very safe in that environment and to keep the passengers happy back there. You know, mm -hmm. they don't like a rough pilot for sure. And they don't want yanking and banking. They want to make sure their coffee doesn't spill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is quite a bit different than what you were doing yeah. with the F-16s, right? Yeah. So let's go back to this. So you're in Korea. And the, the reason that I bring this up is I saw you post this a couple of times, a couple of years. We're friends. We've been friends for over a decade, like I said. And I see your stuff on social media. But you talk about that was a, a kind of a life-changing moment for you. So t tell us a little bit about what led up to that. What happened? You had to eject. That's yeah. I mean, you almost died, right? So That's we were, well, it could have gone wrong yeah. very much so. Uh, thankfully, it didn't. I have another friend too, Scott O'Grady, and his ejection story is pretty amazing. He ejected in the combat area of uh, Bosnia when we were fighting there. Hmm. And his whole, how he speaks about his finding his faith even more deeper during that experience is amazing. But for mine, to set it up, yeah. um, I had had a long battle trying to find Jesus in my heart. Mm. And I didn't really understand it all. And that's a whole, that would open up a can of worms. But yeah. um, when I moved to Korea, during that period of time, I, I, I was getting closer. I didn't have one of these aha moments where yeah. I'm a believer, I got 
Jesus in my heart. That's yeah. not how it went for me. It, it was, was like a slower process. process. And you're in your like mid twenties, late twenties. Yeah, now? I was twenty seven, I think. Okay, okay. And but I I hooked up with this guy. We called him Cherry, and uh, Cherry and I would go to church every Sunday. And I was I all of a sudden there was one Sunday where I really just like you know what I got Christ in my heart, mm. and it and I I felt it felt different, mm. you know? Yeah. It's just one of those things. It just felt different. I don't know how to explain it. Anyhow, so I'm on this mission. This is a very large exercise in Korea. It's called Fall Eagle. Um, the U.S. Marines, Army, Air Force, the Navy is involved in it, the Korean Air Force and Navy, and um, everybody's involved in talk this. Talk about actually. complexity. Yes, yeah. talk about complexity. Yeah. And it's a whole week-long scenario of playing with chem weapons and everything else. you got to wear all the chem gear and it was a mess. Mm. <laughs> Anyhow, we're in a very large package. And in our typical or in our particular group, there was eight F-16s. So there's a lead, lead package of four and then a second package of four. And I'm number eight in this entire chain. And we go out and we are flying this mission. We got bombs on board. We're, we're fighting our way in. And then you bomb the target and then you fight your way out and we have air support that's up above that's also trying to fend off the enemy so we don't want to engage we want to get to the target but if we have to engage we do so again a lot of complexities a lot of briefing goes mm -hmm. into all that mm -hmm. well we're flying this low level so we're at 500 feet going 500 knots like 550 miles an hour or so and uh, we're in mountainous terrain so you're kind of you know yeah. following the mountains around anyhow we do a 90 degree turn and i roll out of that 90 degree turn and boom i get thrown forward in the straps of the yeah and i'm like what the heck was that and i'm pretty new to the airplane i got about 200 hours in the time i retired with over 3600 so i'm fairly new yeah. into this airplane and the very first thing that goes to my mind is that my engine reverted to its secondary mode and i don't know why i thought that but that's just what hit my head or came to my mind and i looked down the instrument engine instruments my engine's still running we only got one right we're a single seat mm -hmm. single engine fighter and we're, so I'm happy my engine's running, right? Mm -hmm. So I start climbing away from the ground and I zip off a radio call. And I won't go into all the depths of the story because it's very interesting when we talk about communication and how important communication is, whether it's kids with their parents, parents with their kids in schools, whatever, you know, yeah. at work, whatever it may be, communication is huge. And yes, this is, is. A, and that's what I go into great detail in my book about because there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this. But anyhow, I zip off a radio call that I've got a problem and I start climbing away from the ground. Well, the my flight lead, number three in our four ship, he is the wing commander for the base at Kunsan, mm -hmm. which is like the head cheese. He's like the president of the base, mm -hmm. right? He controls everything. And we had flown a lot together. Anyhow, he's thinking it's the guy in front of him with the problem, because I never used my call sign, communication. The guy in front of us, his radio died, didn't know it. So he doesn't even know any of this is going on. The, also, because this is a major exercise. And this is all happening at 500 miles an hour, you yeah, said? Yeah. Oh, wow. At 500 feet. I mean, at 500 feet, yeah. When you yeah. If, if give you an idea, if you overbank, you got about three, four, five seconds before you impact the ground if you make a mistake. So at that speed and that height. At that speed and height, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyhow, so there's a lot of, a lot of confusion going yeah. on right now. And I'm climbing away from the ground and I'm trying to get my engine restarted. And then the, the engine completely quit. And I'm trying to get it restarted. It's not getting restarted. Meanwhile, I think my flight lead is with me, and he's not. He's chasing down number two. It's ahead of him. 
And I eventually get to the point where I crest and I start to glide down and I'm not going to get this thing started. I start to see the mountains rising in the canopy in front of me. I'm like, holy crap, I'm really yeah. have to get out of this thing. Yeah. And uh, so I zip off a radio call. I'm getting out. I'm getting out. And I get myself in this great body position, which in the F-16, the, the seat reclines 30 degrees and there's reasons for it. And you're taught to have a really straight back to before you pull the handle because it's about a 40, 50 G kick, which is a lot. That's it's a lot of stress onto your spine and you can break, literally break your back. Well, the ejection handles between the legs and I pulled the handle so fast and so hard, I actually pulled myself off of the seat. So now my back is curved and which is not a good thing, mm. but I pull the handle and nothing happens. And I'm like, so, oh, this isn't good. So <laughs> 500 miles an hour. Well, now you're gliding well, now down, but the mountains are coming. I'm doing 200 and I'm about... You tried to eject, but it doesn't work. Well, no, it worked. But what happened is I got temp what's called temporal distortion. Everything slowed down. So, you know, what is time? That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. What is time, right? We yeah. think of time at a 24-hour clock because we've been programmed by the mm -hmm. sun, but that's not what time mm -hmm. really is. Anyhow, I pull the handle, nothing happens in my mind. And then all of a sudden I hear a pop and, and I can see the canopy slowly start flying away in front of me. And then I start to get this gentle breeze on my face. And then because I had pulled myself so hard, I'm actually looking down and I can see this black billowing and fire all over my feet. And I remember thinking to myself, literally at this pace, I go, oh my gosh, my feet are going to burn because I saw this fire all around. And then I get the kick in the pants and I start going up the rail and I'm like, okay, now my back is bent. That's not good. So I force my back straight again and um, go up. We cl I clear the aircraft and then everything goes real time from there. All that happened from the time I pulled the handle till it went real time was less than two tenths of a second. But, but I can play but it's, frame it's... by frame wow. by frame. Yeah. Wow. So like the, 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 the cockpit is like going off slow motion. You're slowly the coming out of yeah. it and all of that. It, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. And then I go up and I, I get into the parachute. I got twisted right wall. Two guys had ejected during the time I was there before me, the time I was there in Korea. And both of them said the neatest thing was watching the airplane without a canopy flying to the ground. So, of course, it's going through my yeah, head. Yeah. I got to see my airplane fly into the mountain, right? So, because I'm in mountainous terrain and I get twisted risers. I, which is anyhow, it's a slight malfunction. I get that undone and I look up just to see the black smoke coming from the side of the mountain. So I missed, so the, you missed, I missed the, the show. <laughs> you missed the show. Anyhow. So yeah, yeah. But everything else from there forward worked out pretty well. Wow. So, yeah. Well, I love that picture of you where you're standing next to your burnt plane, like it's all burnt up and yeah. Yeah. So how did that experience? I mean, that's an experience that few people are ever going to have, obviously. You, you, you talk about how that was almost life transforming in some ways. How did that, how did that start changing? Yeah. Your Cause you're here? like, okay, I've just gotten a new life. I've just gotten a new, a second chance at life. Cause there's been a lot of guys that haven't made it and a lot of friends. I've lost more friends than I got fingers and toes and mm. it gives you a whole new perspective on life. And I said, I will never live without gratitude towards having another day to live. And so it did change my perspective totally. Yeah. Uh, and I was so thankful that I had found Christ in my heart by that point because I knew it was about something bigger than me mm. at that point. And yeah. if I hadn't made it, I knew I was going to be okay yeah. because I was saved. Yeah. And, and that is a very good place to be, yeah. you know? So, but yeah, it did. It, uh, it was, 
I, I could go on and on with the story about it, but I know there's other things well, we want to talk you, about. So you, I hear you saying that it was it was something that you you were good either way because of your faith. Mm -hmm. You knew you were good either way. If that was your last day, yeah, your I was very at was, peace with it all. Yeah. In fact, there was no fear. Fear did not enter the into the thought process once throughout that entire deal. Yeah. The place where fear did enter was in that flight back to over the Adriatic back and my, my, my wingman's telling me, yeah, it's probably a fire going on inside your airplane. That was fear because there's nothing I could do. Yeah. You know, I didn't have, all I had was time to think about it. Mm -hmm. In the ejection sequence, I was on a mission trying to figure out what was going on in my airplane. Now it's time to get out. Okay, I'll get out. Yeah. You know, it just all your training kicked in, the right? Training kicked in. Yeah. But I was also at peace with it all. Yeah. You know, and even in the Adriatic scenario, that if things had gone wrong, I knew I was going to be okay yeah, yeah. because I had something yeah. else. You know, one of the things I've noticed about you, Guy, in the 10-plus years that we, when we see each other every once in a while is you live that way now. Like, you do live like each day is a gift. And yes. that's, that was a, a moment in your life where you really learned that, right? Now, how many years ago was that? The ejection? Yeah. <laughs> when was that? 1990? Okay. 1980s? So 31 years? Yeah. Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. But that you started to look at like every day as a gift. Correct. Every day as a gift. And that's such a great reminder for all of us listeners. It's a great reminder because I think a lot of times we just start rolling through life and we got our to-do list, right? And and you start planning out what's, you know, three months or six months or seven, and you forget to really live in the moment, right? Especially when a lot of bad things are happening to you, yes. right? And it's really easy to get into that victim mode and why me type mode. And I can always think back to that and go, hey, yep. wake up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Life is a gift. Well, part of what we talk about on this No Gray Areas podcast is that, that to live on purpose for a purpose. And I think that was one time in your life where you really started doing that. But you've been, you've, in the 30 years since that, you've really done that well, um, living on purpose for a purpose. Why, why is that important to you? Like I, I've seen you as someone who seems to live with focus, someone who's like, I, I got one life, I don't want to waste it. Some of that comes from your faith, right? But but why is it that you live that way? You know, I don't know how to exactly answer that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, what I can say is my dad was my model. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he didn't, like I said, he was kind of a quiet guy in a lot of ways. But one of the things that he his biggest pet peeve was if you're going to do something, do your very best at it. I don't care if it was mowing the lawn or cleaning the gutters or whatever the chore may have been. He instilled in me to always do my very best regardless of what it was. And that really stuck with me. And I guess that's kind of what it is, you know? So if a new interest or something piques my interest and I'm going to take it on, then I want to do my very best. I don't have to be the best but I have to be the very best that I know I can do. And anything short of that is cheating myself. I don't mm -hmm. care about what other people think about me or what the outside world is seeing it. You know, I hear the words of my dad saying, do your very best. Wow. So what a gift. He what gave a philosophy. You, right? yeah. What a gift. Like yeah. that is, I mean, what, a, what, a, what an amazing gift you dad. No wonder he's one of your heroes yeah. for sure. So how do you do that though? So I get the why maybe is, is something that your dad instilled you in, in you, but, but how do you do it? Like when you start thinking practically how you live on purpose for a purpose or practically how you try to do your best, what are some things that you do? I think about the vision that I want to see at the end of whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And I allow that vision to pull me. Uh, it's one of 
things that Tony Robbins will talk about a lot. You know, mm -hmm. you have a vision that's so strong that pulls you towards it. And not knowing Tony Robbins when I was growing up or during all this, um, I can tell you that that's a lot of what it was. I would find something that stirred the passion within me. So it's not something I think about. It's just something that that is yeah. because I allow that passion. I find something I'm passionate about and I allow that passion to drive me. Mm -hmm. Just like when I found the military, it was like I didn't go out, set out to be the top cadet in the in the detachment, I just did my very best each day. That vision was that, driving you. The, the vision of being an, F, uh, an F-16 fighter pilot is what that vision down yeah. the road yeah. is what had me do my very best every day. Yeah. Because I know what I what I'm what the end game is. Yeah. You know, whatever that may be. Yeah. So I, I that's the only way I can really answer yeah. that question. Yeah. So practically, if like if you're saying if someone wanted to get into something, whatever it is, like maybe they want to start riding horses and they've never ridden horses before, but they have that passion. You're saying put that that vision of like like they're almost imagining themselves at some point like riding a horse and they're thinking and that's what that should that should drive them, right? Exactly. Is that one of the things that you've done? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is it. I mean, if you want to be an artist, you want to be a painter, you want to be a videographer, you want to go into the movie, you want to be an actor, whatever it is. You got to picture it in your mind's eye first, yeah. the end game of what you yeah. want. Yeah. And um, I mean, all the greats throughout the years, even Jesus will tell you the same thing. It's yeah. not, it's not, yeah. it's not secret. It's yeah. everybody. Yeah. If you seek it, you will yeah. find those answers written in yeah. many, many books. Oh yeah. Yeah. The Bible even talks about they'll, they'll perish without a vision. Like That's people, right. Yeah. It, it, it just doesn't. So another thing that we talk about on this podcast often is the, the importance of choices. This, oh. is, this is around a guy, <laughs> no gray areas, Joseph Gagliano's story. And he made some, some poor choices uh, in his early twenties. And he's passionate now about helping people understand, especially young people, the importance of choices. You've seen that for sure. Mm -hmm. Where, where do you see the importance of that? And, and you're also passionate about that on seeing in fact you were telling me that's one of the reasons you wrote your book that's right is you want to see young people understand the power of choices speaking of that a little bit well go back to when i was working in the warehouses um during the the summer times of school right but that was a decision that i made during that time that i'm not going to do that i'm not going to be you inside knew you wanted to be outside yeah yep. I'm, i knew that i was not going to be indoors i needed a job where i was going to see the sun during the day because mm -hmm. um, it was so important to me so there you go. They casted the vision. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what the path was going to be, but I knew what I didn't want, which is kind of reverse psychology, I guess. But I, I didn't know exactly where I was headed, but I knew what I didn't want. Yeah. And when that whole thing with the ROTC and flying fell into my lap, that, that brought me to seeing that vision become a reality, yeah. you know? Um, you know, just really quickly, let me interrupt and say what's, what's, what's fascinating about that is you made a decision on something you didn't want. You had no idea where it was going to lead you. You wanted to see the sun. Little did you know you were going to see the sun out of a cockpit at Mach 3 or whatever. Correct. Right. <laughs> right. How, exactly. how amazing. But it still started so those with are the choices, decisions. Right. Yeah. So those are choices that you make. Um, there's a lot of choices, bad choices I made along the, along the time too. And one of the things I will also talk about in this book is that I think from a parenting standpoint that if you have open communication with your kids and they know you love them unconditionally, they'll figure the rest out. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things that I was very fortunate enough with my parents. Who, even when I messed up, did things really bad, and I did a lot of bad things because <laughs> of the group I hung around with, I always felt comfortable that I could go to my parents with anything and tell them the truth 
of what had happened, what I did, why I did what I did, the poor decision, and they wouldn't beat me up for it, yeah. you know? And they would listen to me, and then they would discipline, you know? <clears throat> Maybe I was grounded. Yeah. Maybe this happened or that happened, yeah. um, to include being arrested and, and various things. So, I mean, not just, you know, <laughs> breaking a window. I mean, I did some pretty not such upstanding individual things. And yeah. so the choices we make can have long-term detrimental things. Mm -hmm. I almost didn't get into the military because I had too many traffic tickets. So, I mean, when I was a teenager, I didn't care about traffic tickets. I paid the fine and, you know, I'll go get another one. I didn't care. But if I had had one more traffic ticket, my whole military career never would have happened. Wow. wow. So you talk about decisions, yeah. right? Um, and if one of those cops hadn't let me off, there was one time when he probably should have given me a ticket and he didn't. Because he had, he understood the story behind it. Um, but if I had gotten that ticket, I wouldn't have been in the military. So you think about, you go back through your life when you go back in um, perspective in the past, um, and you think about some of those choices that you made, and it could have gone one way or the other. And I'm very fortunate. That's why I tell people all the time, I've lived a very blessed life, because. Things have worked in my favor even when I didn't understand it. And I didn't understand what, why this happened in my life, even if it was a very bad thing. I'm like, oh, my God. You know, but maybe it turned out for the better. Yeah. Because yeah. it drove me to where I am today. And today yeah. is a very good place. Yeah. What a, man, you're, you're, I can see again why your dad was your hero, why your parents were here. They, what a gift they gave you. My wife and I talked about that when our kids were little, too, what you had just mentioned. We said if there's one thing, if there's only one thing our kids will absolutely know when they walk out of our home at 18 and move on, if that was the age, you know, when, but, but it would be that no matter what happens, no matter what they do, that, that, that they will always have a mom and dad that will love them. And that goes a long ways. Right. And that doesn't mean that they're like, you even said there was still discipline involved with oh, yeah. your dad. Like he's saying, <laughs> Hey, I'm still going to love you, but now there's consequences. Right. And that was one of the things you learned then about choices, even though you're making some poor ones in those, in those years, you were still learning subtly the the importance of choices right negative oh yeah yeah negative consequences of him well i would uh i mean you don't do this anymore but back when i was growing up <laughs> back in the 60s uh early 70s uh the parents would often you know paddle yeah they yeah. had these little wooden paddles and yeah. they would paddle right yeah and i got the I paddle grew up that way <laughs> i got the paddle a lot and so this one time i knew i had done something really bad yeah. and i knew i was gonna have to tell my mom about it right and so I went in ahead of time, got the paddle out. I sawed it in half, <laughs> put it back in the cabinet, yeah. told my mom the story. Yeah. She went in to get the, the paddle and she just started laughing. Yeah. And it was a great, it was a great moment, but it was, it, I don't know how to explain it. It was just a, uh, it was a revelation of yeah. love. Yeah. It was what it really was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, man, what a fascinating life you've had. And you, for me personally, you've been so inspiring. I know you are to a lot of people. Tell us a little bit about your book. And if someone wanted to, f to follow you or to figure out how to get the book, connect with you, where would they do that? How would they do that? Yeah. So the book came from, um, well, it's called Discovering Your Authentic Truth. Uh, the book came from me being lost again. So I was lost in, uh, right after high school and beginning of college. And then I was Lost again after I left the military. I'm flying for Southwest. I mean, most people that go to the airlines, this is their lifelong dream, yeah. right? To get to the airlines. I'm here, I am flying with the airlines, one of the better ones in the country, and I'm feeling lost. And like, what's going on? And long story short, I connected with a lady 
that I had seen long before at a seminar. And I seeked her out and she put me on this path that helped me find myself again. And what it really was, was an identity crisis. And because for all those years that I was flying the fighter. You were a fighter pilot. Yeah. That was your identity? Yeah. So people would ask me, what do you do for a living? I'm a fighter pilot. It's not what I do. It's who I am. Mm. And I didn't put that connection together until I went through this process with this lady. And all of a sudden I realized that that's not who I am, right? Who I am is my spirit, my soul, my, my essence, right? Yeah. And everything else is what you do. But that I am a fighter pilot kept me alive. So it served a very valid purpose, right? So now I'm no longer a fighter pilot. I'm a commercial airline bus driver. And so I had, I was lost and there were some other things that were going on in there. Anyhow, I found myself through that. I went through all her courses. I, I got master certified with her and uh, I started helping people on the side. Mm-hmm. And these people started seeking me out. You know, you talk about how do things happen in this world. I never set out to do this. Yeah. And they started coming to me and I found I was very effective in helping guiding them to overcome their challenges, whatever it was, from narcissistic husbands to suicide to various things. And I said, you know what? I've always kind of wanted to write a book. People have always told me I should write a book because of my writing. And I said, now I've got material to write a book. And so I sat down to write it. It was a very interesting process. I start to finish for the project was only a year, which is, I've come to find out, is pretty quick. That is quick. Uh, But I wrote all the material in about two, three months. And then it was just editing, editing, and trying to figure out how to make it all fit. And I'm very happy with it. It's an Amazon bestseller, and it's helped a lot of people that I haven't worked with personally on transformational issues. But just through reading the book, they have found new hope in themselves. They found themselves. They Mm -hmm. understand themselves and how to interact with their spouse or their kids or whatever it may be. Yeah. 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 Great book. Um, I have a signed copy actually. (laughs) Thank you very much. And I, yeah, I loved it. It's very, very good. Uh, Um, great material. So we do this thing. Um, it's kind of a fun way to end our podcasts. Uh, I asked our guests to give me two truths and a lie. So the, the, it's ironic because we're on this no gray areas. We're talking about the importance of choice and integrity. And here I am asking you to lie, but it's a fun way. Guests now have listened to you for a little while. We know a little bit about guy, but let me see if I can, if the guests can figure it out. So give us two truths and a lie, and let me see if I can figure out the lie. I can ride a seven-foot unicycle. <laughs> I uh, was actually a, um, a junior race car driver. Okay. And I absolutely love the beach. Okay, now I, I get to cheat a little bit on this one, so the listeners don't know you as well as I do. I know the truth is the beach. I know <laughs> you love the beach. In fact, um, like one of the, the the best beaches in the world, according to you, would be, am I right, Bellows Beach or Bellows Beach in Oahu? Yeah, oh, uh, private beach. It's awesome. Yeah, I've been there. It's in the Air Force, right? It's, yeah. It, um, and my Military, son was in the Marine yep. Corps. He was stationed there, so he got me on the beach after you told me so much about it. And I went there. And I'm like, I can see. So I know that's the truth. So now I'm between okay. The seven-foot unicycle and the junior race car driver. I'm going to say since your dad worked with bikes and race, I'm going to say you can ride the, the unicycle. Is that true? It's true. Okay, I got it. I got it. Okay, so you did not, you were not a junior race car. I wanted to be. Which could would, would fit certainly with yeah. someone like you that ended up flying jet airplanes. But I, so I you, wanted to. 
Yeah, well, well, that makes sense too that you had so many speeding tickets then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guy, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Really, really appreciate it. Um, you, you are inspiring to a lot. I hope people go out and pick up your book and read it. Uh, it will definitely help them. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, and if they want to find me, uh, just by first and last name, GuyBerlando.com. Guy you can learn more about the book. You can send me an email. Yeah, yep. find me on Facebook, whatever. Good. GuyBerlando.com. Yep. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the No Gray Areas podcast. To dive deeper into the story, be sure to subscribe, follow us on social media, and check out nograyareas.com.